0: Welcome to another edition of Leaders and Learners, where we know that the best leaders are lifetime learners. They aren't those individuals that think they know everything. They're always out looking for answers and solutions to some of the problems that we deal with in our society, finding opportunities in their niche to grow as a person and bringing it to the masses to help them also solve problems. And today, um... It's no different. I have an amazing lady for you uh, that is speaking about something that is close to my heart. Many of you know that I am a youth advocate. I absolutely believe that, well, like Whitney says, the children are our future, and we have to do the things necessary to make sure that the future is bright for them. Obviously, we can't solve all the problems, but equipping them with the opportunity to learn, to be empowered, and to also be problem solvers. I'm going to bring you a woman that put herself in a situation to probably learn more than she even wanted to. You know, sometimes we uh, open up Pandora's box and find out that, oh my God, there's so much in here that needs to be cleaned out. And she started doing some of the work that hopefully will help some of our legislators and leaders in education get uh, get involved in a way that solves problems and makes the future brighter for our young people so after working television in television writing for a while Clavon harris decided to follow her heart by transitioning into teaching so that she could make contributions inside the classroom and help youth in her hometown in philadelphia well she found some things that could actually probably help everywhere, not just Philadelphia. Many of the things that she talks about uh, in her book and some of the stories that she shares are familiar to many of us, whether we're in California or New York or Utah. Um, There's opportunity for change and improvement, and we're going to bring her in today to talk about some of her experiences, to talk about her book, some of her recommendations, and some of the things that really challenged her heart uh, while she was in education. So, Miss Clavon Harris. Hi, how are you? Hi, Tanya. How are you? Thank you so much for having me in. I appreciate you being here. So let's go ahead and jump into it. I want to talk about where you are from and what led you to being an author, because we know that's not one of the easiest things to do, but your book is amazing. And Thank I want you. you to talk to some of our maybe author future authors on what Drove you to start and finish this incredible book?
1: You know that's a that's a great question. No one's um, ever asked me in that way before. Um, I think this was really more of a passion project because I didn't actually want to be an an author per se. I am a writer. Um, I have a, a background in writing for television and for advertising and um, other types of uh, and just different types of digital media. But um, what happened is I decided that I was going to leave TV writing, return home and become a teacher. But once I arrived back in Pennsylvania, I discovered that uh, Pennsylvania doesn't do emergency credentials. So I had to do a two-year program Um, in order to get certified, but they were begging for substitute teachers and asked if I would would be willing to consider doing that. And I agreed, and I thought it would give me a chance to get my feet wet and really see what was going on in the, the public schools in Philadelphia. And what I saw just really shocked and amazed me. Um, and I realized that, you know, there are so many kids who are not getting the education that they deserve. And, you know, it's not always necessarily the fault of the teachers. It's not always necessarily the fault of the, the schools, but there are different systems and regulations in place that prevent change from being made as quickly and as efficiently as it needs to be made. And because I was so just stunned by the amount of classroom disruption and and loss of learning, and I just thought, this is so unfair to these kids. It's just, you know, how do you expect them to be competitive when they're losing out on a part of their education every day, every week, year after year? you know, it's it's putting them in, in such a difficult position. And so I wanted to write this book to kind of give people an idea of what it's like on the inside of a large urban school system on a, a daily basis.
0: What were some of the things that you saw that you consider so disruptive that that it was unfair? And who was it unfair to?
1: I would say the main thing that that really struck me is that in nearly every classroom I went into, there were one or two, maybe three kids who, unlike the rest of the kids, had difficulties sitting down, behaving, focusing on work, being quiet. Um, they just they just couldn't do it or or wouldn't do it. And when I first started, I just thought, wow, some of these kids are really poorly behaved. And then as I did a little more research, I discovered that some of these children had um, disruptive disabilities that were causing them to act out. And, And when I say act out, I don't mean just, you know, talking back or talking while the lesson's going on. I mean, sometimes I had kids who were attacking other children, who were constantly challenging me, who, you know, if, if corrected would, you know, fall down on the floor and scream for 20, 30 minutes at a time. Um, It was, it was just, it was heartbreaking to see them behaving in this manner. But what else was heartbreaking is the impact that it had on the other children in the classroom. Because some were just, just became anxious and uncomfortable and sometimes afraid. Um, And then sometimes what they would do is they would become friends with that kid because they didn't want that kid to turn against them, to bully them, to harass them. And and i thought this is this is just it's it's unfair it's unfair to the kids who are struggling with the disabilities because clearly not they're not getting the support that they need in the in the right environment and it's not fair to the other kids because they're having to deal with that disruption and the anxiety that it causes because it's i mean i saw this on the faces of of the kids all the time they would be upset you know, they wouldn't know what to do. And, you know, sometimes they would just be hoping, oh, please just don't let it, don't don't let any of this nonsense come in my direction. I'm just trying to do my work. So it was, it was heartbreaking.
0: When I was a kid in elementary school, there was a, there was a boy, his name was Bruce. Can't remember his last name. That's probably best. And he was just (laughs) unhinged, right? Like we all knew in the class, any little thing could set him off, and how it ends could be harmful to any of us. So yeah, we were on pins and needles most of the time, uh, just to keep from setting him off or trying to be his friend. So what you're saying is exactly true, and this was eons ago. I'm not trying to give out my age, but forever ago. We were in lunch line one time, and he he did something, and um, I bent over to pick up the ball or something, and he kicked me in my stomach so hard i thought his foot was about to come out of my mouth and this kid did not even get suspended no eventually told my mom she comes up to the school to find out that he has um you know behavior disorder or whatever the case may be and since it sounds like this is something that (laughs) is common what would be your uh suggestion right now and do you cover it in your book about how we deal with the few kids in these classrooms that are prone to um, volatile behavior uh, with their classmates, because I'm I'm guessing the reason they don't do it is they don't wanna isolate them. So what, how do we, what is that? Talk me through that because I'm sure there are other, maybe even educators or parents that are trying to figure out what, what is this thing where we coddle The few that put fear into the many.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's exactly the question that I had when I when I first started. You know, and you know, on top of being a a new substitute teacher and just trying to learn the system and what was expected of me, and trying to provide a meaningful experience, then I had this other thing that was going on that would take up a significant percentage of my time, and. You know, as I did research, as I spoke to a lot of different teachers and principals and counselors, um, what I discovered is that there's something called the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which is a federal law. And this federal law governs what can and cannot happen with, with these children. And in fact, the law says, that all children with disabilities to the maximum extent appropriate are to be educated in the general education setting and provided services in that setting to support them. The problem is that's a difficult model to implement and and make successful, especially if you have a large urban school district that's chronically underfunded. You don't have the personnel and you don't have the funds to try to support the the children that have those types of problems that are dispersed all over the school in different classes. There have also been studies done that have demonstrated, uh, there was a meta-analysis that that I looked into, which was an analysis of 50 other studies that that said that four children with emotional and behavioral disorders and for some children with unmanaged learning disabilities, a smaller classroom setting with teachers with um, specialized skills that have been trained in order to support them and help them are, are much better for those, for those kids. But you have a federal law saying, no, it's going to be the opposite. We're going to place them into the general education setting. And, and that's, just, that's just that. Oh, I'm sorry, Tanya, I can't hear you. We're not really equipping our educators to deal with that, right? Like, no, I, I... no, no, they're not. Um, a lot of them nowadays, they have to take a lot of psychology classes and things like that. But, you know, I've spoken to so many new teachers and I've spoken to a lot of counselors and psychologists. There's one psychologist that I interview in the book, and she says, that she very often sees teachers are just not prepared to handle what they're encountering in the classroom with, with kids who have these disruptive disorders. They don't know how to deal with it. That's not what they went to school for. And they don't know how to um, how to make it work and how to make it work for the rest of the kids. So, and she said, she tells them all the time. She tells the new teachers, she tells the experienced teachers, this is what the job is right now, you know, and you have to make adjustments. And she's a a big supporter of inclusion. But what she said is that you can't just have blanket inclusion. You have to see if that works for that particular child. You can't just decide this is the formula and then force all the kids into that that framework because it doesn't necessarily work for them and it doesn't work for the other kids. So
0: it seems like with COVID coming out of COVID, a lot of schools are also experiencing a rise in violence in their schools. And that's not necessarily uh, um, a disorder. This is, this has become bad behavior or has it? Like what? What do you, what do you contribute? What do you attribute to the bad behavior and the rise of violence in classrooms now that we're out of
1: COVID? Because the numbers show it's a real thing. It is real. Um, you know, I'm I'm not a psychologist, but my expectation is that. Um, that COVID does have something to do with it. COVID has had a great impact on adults and children alike. There, ha- there has been um, an increase in terms of mental health. Um, I don't necessarily want to say issues, but mental health challenges for a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people were locked in the house for, you know, basically two years, couldn't see their, you know, best friends, their loved ones. I think for, for children, that's particularly difficult to process. And so I think it did have an impact on a lot of kids. But the other thing is that a lot of times, especially in the larger school districts, you have kids who are undiagnosed. You don't Mm -hmm. know that they have problems because they don't have the funds to do the diagnosing. I had that happen a couple of times where I was uh, in a particular classroom for a, a specific stretch of time. And quickly was able to identify that certain kids in there needed help, needed support, you know, and spoke with their parents and their parents said the same thing. And the school said, oh, they're on the list to be tested, you know, but then they, they weren't, you know, time went by, weeks went by, a month went by, you know, and months had already gone by and these kids still hadn't been, um, tested and diagnosed to, to, to determine what type of support they really needed to, to help them um, meet the challenges of, of everyday school?
0: I am a gun violence survivor and a sexual assault survivor as a child. I wrote a book about it, more or less because many people assume that my life was great because I work mainstream and I do you know, all these cool things. So writing the book was an eye-opener for a lot of people because they just assume that kids that have been through life and trauma are violent, bad students, and wild. So it was an eye-opener for a lot of people. But at the same time, kids that have dealt with trauma, domestic violence, and things of that nature that are in the schools sometimes do um, display bad behavior, but it's not necessarily erratic or angry. What are some of the things that you saw in your school where you were um, in regards to behaviors from kids that come from a tumultuous
1: background? Can you talk about that? You know, I can, I can think of one. First of all, you know, thank you for being so strong and being willing to share that story. Um, with the world, because a lot of people try to try to hide that type of stuff because there's a certain amount of of, of stigma that people try to attach to um, those types of situations. But really, um, there was a study the the ACE. Um, ACEs. Yeah the yeah it was the. Um, I'm trying to think what it was. Um, Kaiser
0: um, did the studies, Kaiser San Diego. And then yeah. uh, Nadine, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris championed it and started uh, putting together a practice that helps young people deal with childhood trauma.
1: Right. And it's, you know, adverse childhood um, events study. Yes. And in that study, they um, surveyed and and followed, I think, 17,000 um People, participants who had um, great insurance, the majority of whom were white and middle class, and of that group, I think two thirds of them had had adverse childhood experiences that have that can have a long-term effect on health and well-being. And you know, of those who had at least one they one experience they had or event they had multiple events. So it's, it's not something that's isolated to a, a very small group of people or any particular cultural group or, or whatever. So a lot of people have adverse events, trauma, um, violence, abandonment, um, sexual assault, and that type of thing in, in their background, which is one of the things that um, I do address in the book. And I did see in, in one of the classes, there was one class that I spent a lot of time with I actually worked with this class off and on over an entire school year. Uh, It started off with me going in. I was supposed to be there for four days, and I wound up being there for two or three months. And then finally, the regular teacher came, and she stayed for a while. And then she went out on leave, and then um, they called me back, and I was there for another couple of months. And then she came back again. And then she went back out and I, I came back and I finished up the school year with them. And, you know, in that class, I saw different levels of um, behavior that were, were, were really kind of <sighs> disheartening. Um, you know, and I got a chance to get to know the kids and talk to their parents. And, you know, of that group of kids, I think I had 18 kids in the class because one class had been split into two because it was completely out of control. And there was a new teacher who had the class and she was struggling. And they uh, they decided to split it to, to help her and help the, the the new teacher. And at one point, both of them were out. I was there and another substitute was there. And that was pretty early in the school year. But, um, you know, there was a child who was, you know, who, who did have some struggles in the class. Um, she wasn't, you know, sometimes she was kind of... Um, had difficulty paying attention or she wasn't listening or, or what have you, but she wasn't, she wasn't violent. She wasn't attacking the other kids and she was very bright. And, you know, her trauma was that she and her mother were homeless. I don't know what happened in, you know, in their household, but it resulted in them not having a place to live and they were staying with some people. You know, there was another young girl who, um, you know, was the victim of, of of gun violence. Someone fired shots, I guess, accidentally into her home with her and her mother. And she was a delightful child. You know, it, it took her a little bit to settle down. She was talkative, but she was, you know, both of those kids were were really great when you got to know them and they listened. There was another child. His his father had died. You know, when he was very young. Also, just an amazing kid who was just like always the first to help. But then there was another child, same thing. His father um, had been killed in some type of violent incident, but he also had some other issues that were going on. And that child terrorized the class. He terrorized the teachers. He was the main reason that those other two teachers kept leaving. Because they could not deal with his behavior. They couldn't deal with him attacking the other kids. They couldn't deal with him walking in and out of class when he wanted. They couldn't deal with him flipping out and screaming at them at the top of his lungs, you know, just because. And I experienced the same thing. You know, it was, I would, it it was just, I would talk to his parents or his mother or his grandmother. Every day, we would text or I would call them or they would call me trying to figure out what we could do to make the situation better. And, you know, we finally got to a point where his grandmother laid down the law and told him that he had to treat me with respect. But that didn't stop him from tripping another kid in the hallway, pushing a kid down the stairs, knocking another kid into the wall so that he hit his head. You know, it didn't stop him from getting up and walking out of the classroom when he wanted or just disrupting the class or punching a kid in the stomach because he didn't like him multiple times. Even after I left that position because the regular teacher came back, um, I had a parent calling me you know, all upset because, you know, that kid was just getting worse and worse and attacking her son. And I said, listen, you have to go up to the school. You have to talk to them. You have to tell them what's going on and that they have to do something. And eventually they did take her son out of that classroom because they had already removed that kid from the other classroom and moved him over there. So they sent the other two kids back over to the other classroom where he wasn't. I mean, it was just, I could not believe the amount of time and energy and stress that that child introduced into my life and into the lives of of the other kids.
0: One of the things that you said earlier I want to hit on is how slow the process is to make change. What do you attribute to that? And how can we resolve some of that? Because I think on every level, in every state, in every county, process being slow hinders growth and empowerment of the kids and the and the teachers. Yeah. So what do you attribute to the snail pace that it takes to get things done and any recommendations on how we can speed that up?
1: Well, wow. um, I, I don't know how to speed it up. The, you know, I think that the main problem here in this specific situation is that it's a federal law that needs to be revisited and revised. And that's, that's a huge thing. That's a, a really, really big thing. And you will have advocates who say that those kids have the right to be in that classroom and they, and they seem to feel that that right supersedes the rights of the other children to, to feel safe and calm and to be able to get their work done. So um, you'll have people that are fighting against it and that will lobby for it. And, and actually how this all began is that I think it was 1986, the Secretary of Education for the United States who had a child with special needs um, started to push the idea that children with special needs should be incorporated into the the, the general ed environment. And first, it was children with mild to moderate disorders, and then it became children with more severe disorders. And for some kids, that's great; it's fine; they thrive in the general ed environment. It's 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 okay. But for other kids, it's not. It's 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 a problem for them, and it's a problem for the other kids. So. I feel like I'm I'm actually going to right now I'm working on putting together a workbook to go along with my book because one of the main questions I get from people is well what can we do? You know, what do you what do you want people to do? How can we help? And so I'm I'm trying to come up with different ideas, but one of the ideas that I have and it may not seem like a lot, but I think that people need to write to the president, or the the secretary of education, or both, and let them know how they feel about this particular situation and what's happening. Because this is not just happening in Philadelphia. It's happening all over the United States. And in the most recent um, teacher survey from Merrimack College, which just came out like a week ago or two weeks ago, three of the top four issues that teachers said needed to be getting more attention were climate related, meaning you know environment in the classroom and in the school, mm-hmm. um, were disruption and the impact that that has on achievement and um, the mental health issues of students. That's three of the top four issues are related to this specific thing. So obviously it's a problem. And this was a national survey. It wasn't just you know one little group of students. I mean, one little group of teachers. So we need to find a way to encourage the people with legislative power to, to retake a look at this particular um, law. Two things. I think it's incredibly important
0: for people to get involved and active with the political process, even if it's just on things that concern you, right? We've become very complacent and just vote for whoever, but not really looking at their policies and what they believe. Right. So understanding who you're voting for and what they actually stand for is more important than if they're Democrat or Republican, because these are issues that far surpass that. When we're talking about our kids and we're talking about policies and we're talking about how the classroom operates, One of the things i wanted to ask you we talk about kids with disabilities but COVID did show a lot of people that they're (laughs) they can't stand their own kids sometimes there were people that (laughs) lost their minds sitting in the house with their own children and i got phone calls from friends and neighbors that were just losing it and the only thing i could think and it spilled out of my mouth a few times is but you're sending them to school you're you're raising people you don't like, and then you're sending them to educators. So talk to me about how, or talk to the audience about how parents can be more proactive about behavioral things that go on with their kids, and how we continue to promote good behavior, respectful behavior in the classroom, um, and how, how to make that a norm, the new norm.
1: Yeah, you know that's you know it's 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 funny that you say that about about the parents. I I heard that a lot as well. And you know what was interesting to me is that y- you often hear that one of the problems with um, with children, especially in urban environments, is that their parents don't care. Their parents aren't paying attention. Their care- parents aren't you know supportive of the education process. But um, a lot of the, the parents that I heard about or spoke to that were struggling, they were middle class parents who just weren't accustomed to trying to um, manage yes. their children. Yes. You know, they just weren't, you know, they were they're accustomed to sending them off to school and they go off to work and do their thing. And then they come home and then it's all, you know, let's eat and let's, you know, do our homework and go to bed. And then you go back the, the next day. So I think that's one thing we have to, to keep in mind, that it's an across-the-board kind of a, a struggle. Um, I think that people in general need to revisit the respect that people used to have for education. I think mm-hmm. that teachers and, the, and education in general don't get the respect that they used to get. I remember the first time I went out as a substitute teacher, not the very first day. I mean, you know what, granted, actually the first day I was kind of floored by the lack of respect by the high school students I was working with. Um, you know, and actually afraid at one point that I was going to be hit as I was trying to crazily stop a fight between people who were like bigger than me. Um, but so that that was shocking. But what else was shocking is just one day going into a middle school and working with a bunch of students who very quickly quickly said to me, You know, I was like, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, because I was about to give my spiel about how important education is and how it opens doors and provides opportunities. And very quickly, I got back, not a teacher. You guys don't make any money. You know, nobody wants to be a teacher and nobody has respect for teachers. I mean, that was immediate. They didn't pause (laughs) before saying that. And it was kind of, you know, they were nodding heads. They were nodding heads across the across the room. Uh, which I found to be shocking. And I did not, I wasn't able to convince them that education was important until I said to them that you don't know who a teacher is. You don't know what they've done. You know, what you should know is that they're here because they want to help. Because most teachers care about kids and want to help them become the best people that they can become. So that's the first thing. So you're punishing them because they want to help you. The other thing is they didn't have any respect for me until I said that I had worked in entertainment. Mm. Once I said I had worked in entertainment for a while, it was like a whole different story. And I think that we have to kind of maybe look at our value system, which I think that people are always saying that we need to look at our value system, but, but we really do because we need to kind of not place so much emphasis and importance on people being, on television or, you know, big on social media or, you know, rich or, you know, having a lot of bling or whatever, and and really kind of start to, to, to turn things back to maybe things of more substance. So not saying that people in entertainment don't have substance, because to be honest, when I did work in entertainment, they were some of the smartest people I've ever worked with in my life. Um, and, you know, really had, you know, deep thoughts about important matters and very often tried to, to interject that into the, the work that they were doing and trying to reflect that for society. But just, you know, this whole, you know, want to be in the spotlight, want to be popular, want to be a star thing is, is not cool. You know, and parents need to talk to their kids about that. And parents need to kind of internalize that themselves as well. You know, it's like, let's, let's focus on what matters.
0: It's interesting um, how kids their perception of what's important. It does come from the home and we, we can't take that away. That's, that's the truth of the matter. So what's coming out of their mouth is coming from where they're born and raised and that matters. And it's important for parents to understand that Um, who they look up to, who they find a real real contribution to our society. Those conversations have to happen. Why are teachers important? Well, you couldn't have a doctor if you didn't have a teacher who's going to teach the next person how to be a doctor. You couldn't have um, an NBA player if you didn't have a teacher who was a coach but what, you know what? what is that conversation looking like? So I 100% agree uh, with you in regards to what we are as a society um, upholding as heroic, because yes. that's what we're looking at. What's heroic in our society? Well, I, I need to know how you're making this world a better place. So whatever industry you're in, how are you making this world a better place? Um, and it's just, it is disheartening, some of those answers that come across. But I did wanna ask you, what is the biggest takeaway from your book and who is your target audience for this?
1: For me, the biggest takeaway is that specific thing, is the, the incredible amount of disruption in the classroom. In the book, you know the first half of the book is just stories from the room you know just just different things that i went through as a substitute teacher as a teacher dealing with kids dealing with parents dealing with administrators um but then i i you know and then following up on some of the schools where i subbed you know and it tells you you know and it you know, it tells you what happened to those schools. Did they become charters? Were they closed? You know, were they shut down because of violence? Or, you know, are they better now because, you know, they've been taken over by XYZ private company? Um, you know, but then the 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 last part of the book was where I really do kind of a deep dive into a lot of the stuff that I read, a lot of the research interviews um, with, with different people and so the, the, the main thing that I want people to understand, is like if they, if they said, you know, I, I can't read this whole book. I can only read part of it. Well, that's actually why I'm doing the workbook. But, you know, I would say read part three because there are stories there that illustrate what I'm saying. And then, you know, and, and the, the impact of children with unmanaged disruptive disorders on the general classroom setting mm-hmm. and how that impacts children in the long term how that, you know, I I can't tell you, it's like I I interview a young woman in in the book who went to a Philadelphia public school, you know, and one of the things she said to me, she's like, here I am looking like I come from privilege because she's white. She said, but, you know, um, I didn't and I, I struggled through school and, you know, there was a lot of disruption And when I graduated and managed to get loans to go to college, I got there and found out that my skills weren't strong enough. So I had to take a bunch of remedial classes and pay to learn what I should have learned for free in in public school. So, and a lot of people are in that particular situation. And it's this continuous disruption that's detracting from the, the, the learning process is chipping away at it a little by little every year. So that by the time the kids graduate from high school, they're not prepared for college and they're not prepared for the, the workforce necessarily. And then they wind up in a job that doesn't have a whole lot of upward mobility. And then oftentimes their kids wind up going to the same underperforming schools. Now, granted, some kids have enough like support at home, they have enough resilience, you know, they have enough whatever in themselves to make sure that they get what they need to get. Like that young lady actually wound up sleeping on couches at her friend's apartments all through college because she couldn't afford to pay for the remedial classes and then her regular classes and graduate, so she couldn't pay for rent. So she was basically homeless the entire time. You know, it's we have to look at this. We have to look at the disruption. We have to look at what the impact is. We have to kind of understand how it affects the children. And I think for some of the children, it it causes them problems. It causes them the, the trauma that they're experiencing. They're experiencing in school because they're being harassed or bullied by a child who is out of control. And then we're not helping that kid who's out of control either because that's not the right environment for them. Understand so I, I think that's the the main takeaway. I appreciate you sharing that.
0: And most important, y'all know I'm all about voting and knowing who your representation is on from a local level all the way up. You have to get involved. You have to know where people stand on these issues because it matters. It matters to our young people. Because they become the people that are making decisions for us later. So, you know, let's make sure that we get tapped into what that looks like from a local level all the way up and write those letters um, that need to be written to the president or the secretary of education. We have to make these things happen in order to make change. So, thank you, Ms. Harris, for being here. Uh, definitely appreciate you. Please let the people know how they can get in contact with you, maybe if they want you to come out and speak or um, follow you on social media. And do you, are you doing a book tour? How can we see you in public and shake hands and touch and feel and get our signatures on these books?
1: Um, I'm not doing a book tour. Um, I've been doing sort of a virtual tour. Um, I haven't been doing one in person. But the book is available, Uh, the book is available on Amazon. It's called Sub Inside the Notorious School District of Philadelphia. And um, it's available on Amazon. It's available on Barnes and Noble, Walmart.com, Apple, iBooks. Um, It's available through independent um, bookstores. Um, And it's available in hardback, paperback, and ebook formats. Um, you can reach me, uh, or reach out to me at, uh, angelwalk.biz, which is the, um, the book's website. Um, I can be reached there through, through email, or you can reach out on Facebook. <laughs> I have a Facebook page. It's long. It's the name of the book sub inside the notorious school district, district of Philadelphia. Um, but I mean, it's, um, pretty easy to reach there as as well. So
0: before we get out of here, can you tell the people about Angel
1: Walk? Angel Walk is actually um, my own publishing label. Um, I decided a while ago that I wanted to write some books. It started with Sub, but Sub took a very long time for me to finish. Um, because of the research and because I went out once, uh, in 2001, 2002, and then step, step back from it because it was just so overwhelming. And then again, I went out 2017 to 2019 and, and subbed again so that, um, I would have a better idea of what was going on out in the the school district and in public education now. After so much time had passed, I wanted to know were things better, but, um, when I first started working on SUB, agents and publishers kept telling me, no one is interested in education. <laughs> no one wants to read about education. You know, that's just not something that people care about. And so I thought, well, I care about it. I, I feel strongly about this. And I continued to, to work on the book, even though I took a, a long like hiatus in between my first subbing stint and, and the second. Um, and I just decided, you know what, I will just publish my own book and I will put it out. And I actually put out another book first and because it was something that I wanted to write about. Um, it was about issues of faith. And then finally, you know, and I thought, well, this will be my practice book. And I did that. And then I came back. I finished up sub and decided, OK, I'm going to to put this out there into the world, because I think that sometimes we can't just accept no from other people. You know, if you feel strongly about something, if you feel passionate about something, you know, make it, make it happen to the best extent that you can. And so that's what I did with Angel Walk and angelwalk.biz.
0: I love that. So all of the information that she shared will be in the captions of the podcast. So please make sure you get in contact, you get the book, maybe get her other book, but (laughs) Like this viewer said, important to go to school board meetings and have your voice heard. If you can't make it out to a school board meeting, I know now they accept like e-comments and write in, but they do listen, they hear, they read, and they intake all that information from the community. It is very important. It is not something that can be overlooked and don't be complaining about it if you ain't participating in it, okay? So get on it. Make sure you do those things that... Um, help bring change for our kids because that's what it's for. We already lived life uh, and now we tell stories to help other people make better decisions and solve problems. So again, I definitely want to thank you for being here. I always want to thank my audience for showing up, for adding their comments, for tuning in, and hopefully uh, learning something new on Leaders and Learners. So make sure you tap in, um, stay connected. I want to thank you guys for being here and have a good
1: rest of your day. Thank you, Tanya.